Hi there, and welcome to the Life Saving Gratitude Podcast. I'm Bunny Terry, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, Johanna Medina. We're talking today to Josh Wimberly, who is a friend of mine that I met at Fight Colorectal Cancer's Call on Congress in, I believe, 2014. Um, Josh was diagnosed with colon cancer at 30. He is a licensed clinical social worker. He lives in Alabama. And this conversation um, is tough at times because Josh has had a number of recurrences. And as he says in the interview, when when we're talking during the podcast, he says, "Um, I, I don't know. I may be at the end of my life. I don't. I thought that was interesting, Johanna. You've met him before. How was it for you to listen to this one? Yeah. Um, yeah, I met Josh, I guess, because I went to Kong Congress the year, it was your second year and my first year, and I met Josh, and, you know, I was uh, finishing up my social work studies in grad school, so it was kind of interesting. I liked, you know, meeting other social workers, but I think this episode's really going to hit differently because he is the first person, first guest we've had that is still in his, you know, in his journey, in his cancer journey, I say with quotes. And, um, you know, uh, we talk a lot, you and I and our other guests, we kind of, we've talked before about, you know, not wanting to always use the word like survivor or fighting or you know, your cancer battle, because we do know a lot of people that have not, you know, quote unquote, survived. And we never want it to come across like those people who, as people say, lost the battle with cancer. We never really want to, you and I tried not to say that because we don't want it to seem like if you didn't, again, I'm struggling with the words to say it, but, but um, we don't, we never want to, we are struggling with saying that because we don't want it to seem like you weren't fighting hard enough or you weren't strong enough to, you know, survive the cancer because that's never true. Everyone who's, who has been diagnosed with cancer is a fighter and is a survivor in different ways, you know, but, but sometimes you just, you know, this, this disease takes a lot of lives and we've known a lot of people who, who have been taken from us from cancer and it is, it's devastating. So Josh's, Josh's story just, yeah, it really hits home differently and it's, it's hard to to know someone and know how much they can contribute to the world and then just be having to deal with this horrible disease. Well, and I, uh, the thing that's, that um, I've now, because we recorded this a couple of days ago, but the thing that I've now told, I would say half a dozen people since I spoke with Josh was that he talks so frankly, first of all, about the journey and about how it's affected his family. Um, he's mm-hmm. really clear to talk about um, the things he's learned. And at one point I, I said, you know, I asked people, um, you know, are they grateful for, um, the cancer? And he is, he's quick to say, absolutely. Yes. I, I, and, um, and he talks about being not just, not just being grateful in darkness, in the midst of darkness, during, during darkness, but being grateful for the darkness. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's some powerful, um, ah, it, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it was surprising to me. Yeah. I didn't know be- that he was going to say that. <laughs> yeah. I think it, I think it is surprising. And I think we also want to 
touch on the fact, and you mentioned it too, like not having that toxic positivity because it still sucks. Like it's still really crappy that Josh has this disease that he has, you know, had reoccurrence after reoccurrence. And he says like the window just keeps getting shorter and shorter. And he, the reality of it is that, um, you know, his, his cancer is not curable. He's going to live with this, you know, until he's, he doesn't anymore. And it's just, it's sad and it is just crappy. So we have to admit that it's not always easy to find that gratitude and easy to find the light in the darkness. So we never want to minimize anyone's experience in that either. So, but I think you and Josh both touch on that really well too in this episode. Well, so I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll let folks know that there are moments when um, I had to step away from the microphone, even like now, because I get so angry at um, how cancer seems to diminish people's lives. And at the same time, this is how life works. It's, it's people are empowered and then they're sometimes physically diminished, but they're mentally empowered. So I keep, and I keep using the word power over and over, but I don't know a different term. Um, We both talked about joyous, um, about being joyous and how that's how he lives his life now. You know, he has these two miracle children and he finds joy in, I, I would say, in a, on a daily basis and despite his pain on an almost momentary basis. So this is a, this is a really inspiring episode for me. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's a great one. Please stick to it. It might be hard to listen to it at some points, but it, it's such an important message. And I just, on a kind of technical note, as I was editing, um, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I think just because of maybe, you know, his environment and probably having kids at home, Josh is recording outside and there is, you know, there's some background noise and there is a little bit of um, kind of some noises that you might hear, (laughs) but I tried to cut around it as much as possible. But just so you know, if you hear anything kind of funky, it maybe lasts like 30 seconds. And I just really, really tried not to cut out too much of what he was saying because it was all really important. So yeah, you might get some, um, ambiance in the back. You, he lives near a Coast Guard base. And so there are lots of helicopters and airplanes and mm-hmm. it was raining because we're there in the middle of a tropical storm, but mm-hmm. um, stay to the end because at the end, you, you want to hear what Josh has to say always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to Josh's story. Um, Like us, follow us, review us, and um, we're happy you're here. So I'm here with my friend, Josh Wimberly. Josh and I met, we're both, um, we've both been diagnosed at some point in our life with colon cancer, and we met at Call on Congress. Josh, I think it was 2014, maybe? I think I was trying to remember the actual date this, today, and I couldn't recall the exact. I'm sorry. It's okay. I think that we met in 14, and then we both ended up on the Grassroots Action Committee of Fight Colorectal Cancer, and then did a panel um, where one of us pretended to be a, a, a senator, or well, a congressperson, right. and the other one was a lobbyist for Fight CRC, and... Um, 
I, was I, I was a senator? Old. Did I did I give you a hard time as a fake senator? I think that I had to be the senator because I was such a rookie and you were so good at it. So <laughs> I can't re I can't recall how we did that. However, um, so I'm I'm reading your bio here because I think I've known this stuff. But you were diagnosed with stage three B rectal cancer in August 2007, and you continue to walk this journey. So I I'm just going to ask you to give our listeners. Um, you know, they're familiar with my book, the Life Saving Gratitude book, but uh, you've got a completely different different journey. So let's yeah. tell folks what's going on with you. Uh, well, first of all, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful for your friendship. I'm glad that this journey has uh, blossomed in ways that it has for you. It's amazing to see from a distance, even though we're separated by geography, social media kind of keeps us all connected, which is good for advocacy and good for friendships and support. So and I'm I thankful think- for that. And I think you should tell folks where you're from because you have such a cool right. accent. <laughs> oh, I, I'm from Mobile, Alabama. So I am down here on the coast uh, of the Gulf Coast and we are currently in Tropical Storm Nicholas. So it's raining a lot at home. So if you hear drip drops in the back, it's just the slight rain of, it feels like it's not gonna end at this time of the year. The blessing is we get sunshine on the other end and sunshine and beaches are really fun. And if you don't know, Alabama has great beaches. So if you didn't know that and you're not from around here, you should look us up. We have some really family-friendly places that have beautiful beaches. And um, we have no beaches here, so. Yeah, well, come come visit us, please. I'd love to come where you are, believe me. That's on my list. I'm actually headed to Utah and Vegas in the end of October to go to Zion National Park, do some hiking with a friend. So I'm excited to get out west. That's not the, I haven't been out there enough to enjoy the beauty that's out there. So I hope to be out there soon. Good. Uh, but back to your question, I'm, I, my story is really long, so it's hard to, I could take up the whole time we have today just telling my story about cancer. Uh, like you said, I was diagnosed in 2007. I've been, geez, in and out of treatment a lot over the past how, 13 how, years. So, How old were you when you were diagnosed, Josh? I'm sorry, I was 30 years old, so I'm one of the early onset uh, folks. Um it wasn't easy to get a colonoscopy. It was hard to get diagnosed. But when I finally got it, uh, everything started moving. Hasn't been easy sailing since then. There's all kinds of things that I'm sure other guests have explored, other topics that come with being a cancer patient. And I don't think it's just unique to cancer. I think sometimes being a long-term chronic illness patient in any sense is a difficult journey. Um, cancer specifically, though, has its own unique challenges. Uh, let's see. I've I've had, if you count major and minor surgeries, I've had roughly, I think, nine major surgeries. So I've had my abdomen open completely like six different times. Um, And then I've had other corollary problems from like radiation that have led to other surgeries. Um, I'm currently in taking a new treatment. I just started a new treatment about three weeks ago. So we found some cancer, well not found, some of my cancer that we knew about had started growing. So the meds I'd been on for a while and I got a lot of mileage out of those meds. Didn't, they just have stopped working, which is a reality for cancer patients. So I'm on some new medications as of a couple of weeks ago. I just completed a short stint of radiation. That was my third time to do radiation. Um, and I'm doing my best to hang in there. So it's, it's, it's not easy. I'm in a tough spot. I'm stage four. There's the cancer currently is, is not, it's not curable. So 
we can't surgically do anything because of where it's at. It's in my, the biggest problem, I have multiple tumors, but my problem tumor is in my pelvis and it's really difficult. It's sitting over my sciatic nerve and growing into my hip. So it's causing a lot of pain and discomfort and there's just not much we can do. So we're just throwing meds at it to see if we can keep it stable and extend my life and, and hope that I have quality of life in that time, which has become super important to me at this point in the journey. Um, Wait, you have little kids? difficult stuff. I do. I have a six year old and a nine year old, Brian and Nora. So these are just difficult times, you know, difficult topics. COVID sure as hell doesn't make it any easier. <laughs> um, Parenting is hard right now for those parents out there. I don't care if you're a cancer patient or not. Parenting is difficult right now. And it's a unique time to be a parent. And I send out all my empathy and sympathy to people that are out there making tough choices with their kids right now. Cause it's tough. It's hard. Well, and you're a, you, uh, you have a doctorate in um, social work, right? That's right. I have a PhD in social work. Although I don't practice now I'm, Given where I am in my cancer journey, I'm on disability and no longer a practitioner, but it's very important to my heart. Like social work and my identity are certainly still connected. Well, and don't you, I'm wondering if that training helps you in any way in this journey. I mean, you know, I would think an engineer with cancer maybe has a different mindset than, I mean, you're a cousin, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying, but it feels to me like being, having that background in social work. Um, maybe gives you a different viewpoint? I don't know. Uh, I think it depends on where you come from. I think we all come to our disease journeys with different expertise, right? So I have certain expertise that others may not have. I certainly don't believe I have something that others can't get. Um, So maybe I have a toolbox that has skills that make certain parts of it easier. Uh, My wife is a social worker too, so we're a social work family. But it certainly has a, it's a double-edged sword. I could point out some minute things that other social workers would appreciate that sometimes create obstacles as well as being helpful, if that makes sense. Um, but it's, I, I would agree that the toolbox you have to have to be a practicing social worker um, can, and I think in my case has helped me be a better cancer patient. I think there are certain parts of stress management and problem solving and, how you manage emotions when you don't have solutions. Um, Because at the end of the day, cancer, if you're on it for a long time, it's just a journey of diminishing options for a lot of us. It's just this slow trek of I'm running out of things to do. And there's a authenticity and honesty with that, but there's also some fear and unknown and, that's not a problem you can fix. You know, social workers are problem solvers. That's what I used to tell my students as an educator. At the end of the day, I think social workers are just problem solvers. They're there to help people think about how to solve their own problems. And in that way, they become active agents in the problem solving process. And so when it's yourself, you're having to use the things you've been telling people forever, you know, like, okay, well, one of the problems with trying to solve problems is that you don't always have a solution. You know, you don't cancer that I have can't be cured. I can't fix that. The tumor in my pelvis is, is not going to change course. It's going to be what it is. I can't fix that. So I need to move that away from the table of the things I'm trying to fix 
that I think I can fix and move it into the area of, okay, this is just a problem I got to live with. This is just a reality that you're going to have to accept and deal with it as best you can. And believe me, I am not successful all the time at that. It's hard. And I think that gets to where I wanted to talk about today, which is how do you sit with, with hard stuff, you know, and how do you, how do you maintain that practice of gratitude if the theme of what you've written about and what I'd like to talk to you about is gratitude, man, it's hard. It's hard to practice because my belief is that gratitude is a practice. If you see it as a destination, you're only going to lose it when you feel like you got it. And the more you say, okay, I got to do this all the time. Boy, does that get challenging when things suck? I mean, like, how are you supposed to be grateful for being stuck at home for two years with COVID because you have a compromised immune system you're surrounded by people in a certain region of the country that don't seem to take it that seriously. And the risk to you to getting an opportunistic infection is really high. And you throw that in the middle of, okay, you're at the end of your life. Holy shit. That's really running up against this idea that you should go live your life to the fullest while you got time. Because gee, that just means I'm throwing caution to the wind and putting myself at risk of some other disease that could be the end of my life. And so it's really complicated, you know, and, you, and then you throw in your kids. And so it's hard to be grateful at times. But I think there are gems that I'm sure we'll get to in a second that have come out of all that. And the more you practice it, I like to believe the better I get at it, at being able to be grateful for the moment and what's being presented to me in my life in certain circumstances. Well, I think this is a really uh, um it's a really timely topic because I, you know, when I started this, um, and in fact, if I was going to go back and write the book again, I would rewrite it, even though I just, which was just published in January. But at the time, don't, don't um, you hate that about writing? How oh it sneaks up on you later? <laughs> yeah, it does. But, but I, I think that what I, what I'm wanting to say now, or what I'm learning is that it's just what you said. Gratitude is a practice and it's not a, you know, it's, I, I never, ever want to come across as being a toxic, toxic, positive in a toxic manner. I never want to um, diminish what people are feeling at the moment. I never, I, I, I never want to take away from um, any sort of darkness or difficulty. I just want to say, I do think that what I know about gratitude is that it's a choice on a daily basis. And some days it's a really hard choice. Oh yeah. Um, I would imagine for you, it's, you know, when I was in the middle of it and my dad would call and ask me what I'm, what are you grateful for? I'd be like, really? Cause, because I feel like jumping off a cliff. I, yeah. I can't think of anything. And so I, and your situation is certainly progress to a much further state than I have. So I think it's good to talk about right now, and especially during COVID. We had a guest, Daphne Miller, a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about how um, we have to learn to be emotionally agile. That's, it's, you just said, it's really hard to control your emotions when you don't have a solution to a problem. So I'd like to kind of like to circle back to that. What are, sure. what, are, what if, what's the gem that you've gotten or that you're getting? You know, what's your, whoever, your friend or colleague, whoever said that about emotional, uh, what flexibility or agile, Agil agility, agility. Yeah. Yeah. that's, that really goes hand in hand with 
I guess as a social worker, what we know about resilience, right? Like right. you need, you need to be able to handle multiple circumstances that are going to get thrown in your life. And I don't think cancer patients are unique to that. Like we all have struggles, we all have problems. And sometimes life throws us curveballs and we have to be ready and agile for that. And the more rigid we are, I think it goes along with what we know about emotional intelligence, right? Are you able to, uh, and a lot of that comes in my opinion from your ability to build compassion and empathy, not just for other people, but for yourself. That's a, that was a really hard lesson for me. So if I had to talk about answering the question you presented originally here, it would be, man, I, I had to really, uh, I had to sit with myself more to develop that kind of gratitude and difficulty. You know, there was so much, I'll call it garbage or baggage. I had to work through, right? I had to get rid of a lot of, you talked about toxic positivity. I think a lot of that was having to shed some of that because a lot of that, if you buy into it, can really lead to a lot of guilt if you're in a bad spot, right? When you get bad circumstances thrown at you in life and everybody around you is throwing toxic positivity at you, if you buy into that, you're setting yourself up to feel like crap because you're going to feel like you're supposed to feel good all the time and you should be grateful about all this crap that's happening in your life. And that's not fair to yourself, right? That's not practicing compassion and empathy for where you are and what the circumstances are of your life in your situation. So a lot of that I had to learn and practice and just keep honing those skills. I think, I think along the way on your journey, if you don't develop the respect for, like we said, gratitude being a practice that you get better at, if you, the, and it's almost like an ego thing too. The more you think you're good at it, I think life's ready to throw you something else and say, well, really, are you really, can you be grateful for this? Like, okay, we got you in a place where you were grateful for what was going on in your life, even though cancer, you were at the end of your life and you're making these tough choices. Well, how about COVID? Let's throw that in there. You know, can you be grateful now? And so it's like, you better be careful about how you approach gratitude because I think there are lessons that the circumstances we find ourselves in life is trying to teach us. And I don't know who that teacher is. I could tell you my spiritual autobiography and, and I could explain to you that to me, that's rooted in my Christianity and my walk with God. But I don't think that's something that has to be the same for everybody. I think whatever faith tradition or non-faith tradition, whatever your life perspective and philosophy is, I think there are some valuable lessons that we all share about how we face adversity how we come out of that, does our character develop, do the skills we use to cope with or adversity get better, right? Are we leaning on the same strategies over and over and over again? Because if we are, I think we're setting ourselves up again. And so sometimes you have to both sharpen the knives and the tools you have, but you gotta look to other people who are wanting to help because other people have toolboxes too. And those toolboxes may have things in them that you don't, have or you don't have the capacity to have and it's not that you have to build your own or you just got to borrow it but the only way you're going to be able to borrow it is to ask for help and boy is that hard I, most I people will tell say, you most people will say yeah that's no problem well let's put you in a situation and see how well you're able to put your pride aside and ask for help because that's just a difficult life lesson well i i that was one of the hardest things for me to learn. I, you know, I'd always been the person who did 
stuff for other people. You know, I'm always the one who showed up at the hospital. I was always the one who brought food when you had a, a memorial service. And I was always, that's how, you know, I was raised in a Southern tradition too. And I come from a Christian background and to, to be in a position where I had to start asking people for help was really, really challenging. So, right. I had to be put in my place early in my journey. It was, I still remember the day because I was being so stubborn and one of my mentors sat me down and, and just looked at me and said, you realize you're robbing other people from being with you on this journey when you don't ask for help. You're, you're not, you're robbing those people of the opportunity to help. You know, it's not, it's not a weakness as much as it is, honestly, if I look back and I'm honest, a character flaw, right? Like an inability to say, boy, you need some help. You need to ask for it. Um, because there are so many people waiting to help. And then with cancer, boy, I don't know if it was for you too, but you'd be surprised at the people that show up to help and the ones that you thought were going to be rock solid that aren't. I guess. Right. And I don't mean right. that in a mean way. I really don't no. because cancer's hard and people are having to deal with their own mortality when they look at you and you have an illness like that. There's a whole lot going on in the dynamics of relationships when you have a terminal illness. Um, but I think there was some truth to that. I was quite surprised at the number of people that were willing to step up and help me to this day, as I speak, I could not be here without the help of other people. Well, that that's a hard one, but I, you, you, um, I, I just, I have to talk again for a minute about this, having compassion and empathy for yourself, because I don't know about your journey, but there was a point in time where I was really ticked off at myself. I was, I, and my body, I was angry with my body as well. I thought, wait a second. So I didn't get a colonoscopy at the moment that I should have. Um, I didn't pay attention to signals that I, I, and I wasn't forceful enough, or or I've heard this from other cancer patients. I wasn't forceful enough with my doctor. And so there's, there's all this sort of outside anger swirling. Maybe, well, it's not, it's not outside. It's internal anger at your, at yourself and your system and your body for, for getting you into you know, for lack of a better term, getting you in this mess. I mean, did you have some of that? Some, I think early in my journey, I think maybe, and I'm going to, we're friends, so I hope we can speak freely. I think sometimes when you're, I think sometimes when your cancer journey diverges like ours has, Mm -hmm. uh, that having to deal with it over and over and over again, really wipes some of that out. Like some of those early feelings I had, I had to let go real quick. Because if you're going to be successful with dealing with cancer over and over and over again, you better stop blaming yourself. Because if you keep blaming yourself for getting cancer or buying into this idea that there was something different you could have done. Because believe me, I made those same mistakes. It wasn't like I was, I, you know, I had all the tale, tale signs that I kind of overlooked for a couple months thinking it was something else. Um, but I can't harp on that. It's been 13 years. I can't look back on that. And, and look at it that way. I have to tell myself, you had cancer years before that. You just didn't know. And so that's where it becomes, excuse my language. I'm, I'm kind of. It's okay. <laughs> I, 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 I tell people all the time that cancer is a mind fuck. Like there's so many things that just flip upside down when you have cancer. And that has happened to me so many times where I've had to readjust my mental framework to survive. I've had to 
just let go of maybe how I saw certain things before. And I think some of that stuff you're talking about was some of those times where, okay, the cancer's back a third time. You've got a new tumor. You got to do this all over again. You've done this twice in your life. Now we're having to do it again. You're going to have to have another surgery. You have to just accept that this is going to keep happening. And I accepted that a while ago. And, and the harder part with the compassion is the, the hard part wasn't accepting it. I think the harder part for me was having compassion with the fact that the windows of wellness, what I call them, those, those windows of, oh, in between the moments where cancers come back and you're having to fight again, those kept getting shorter. Over time, those windows just keep getting shorter and shorter. You know, because now, like the last, I've come down to like what eight months between the last time this has happened, and it just keeps getting shorter and shorter. And having, you can't. I guess I could choose denial if I wanted. I learned a long time ago denial doesn't work. Well, no, I'm sorry, denial works. It's just not successful. Um, but you, you can't ignore that. You can't ignore this like narrowing window of wellness you keep having. And having to have compassion for myself in the midst of that is my biggest struggle because I keep wanting to say right now where I am, my hardest struggle with compassion is figuring out if choosing to not do treatment anymore is the more compassionate choice. And that's a really hard place to be like trying to figure out like what is what's the more self-compassionate choice here? What do I really want my life to look like at the end? And am I making that a reality? And if I'm not, why? And if I'm not, what do I want to do different to make that world more a reality? Um, and I don't know what that is because, again, it's complex and it's multi-modalities because you got a family system that's involved. Right. It's not just me. Right. I got friends that support me and... It, it's just difficult to be compassionate with myself right now because I'm struggling with the weight of how heavy these decisions are. Like I kept talking about putting off heavy decisions. These are some of the ones that I didn't necessarily put off. Like I didn't think about them. Like I have, I've been ready. We've, my family and I have been ready for this moment. We knew these moments were coming. So it's not like we ignored them, but when they get here, how do you, how do you really make it happen? You know, when you sit down and talk to your spouse or your loved one or your family about here's how I want my life to look at the end. Boy, how do you how do you make that a reality and how do you do it in a way that's compassionate to who you are and who you want to be? Because circumstances change and how you think about your decisions before you find yourself in that firing line aren't the same. You know, hypothetically thinking about a situation and being in the situation are different. It's easy for me to say, I don't want to feel like crap at the end of my life and keep trying things over and over and over again that aren't going to be successful, that are going to make me feel like crap. It's easy for me to say that when I'm not at it, because when I'm at it, I'm looking at my two kids. Right. And that's a difficult decision to make when your six-year-old and your nine-year-old are playing games with you and you're spending time with them. So those are... It's, it's just hard. Self-compassion is hard, but I do recognize that as one of my weaknesses and one of the things that I wish I was better at. So I, you've, you've done this amazing. Um, I, I mean, you, you did this really amazing um, 
sort of physical, I, I mean, it seemed to me like it was a transformation, this physical transformation where you made a decision about three or four years ago to take this body that's, that was still seemed to be fighting cancer on a, you know, on an on again, off again basis. And you really got in your body of, about that. Can, can we talk about that for a minute? Just because I think that's, that's really got to be helpful in some way. It's, I think it's very helpful. It's a catch 22 for me right now because I can't do any of that stuff right now. So if I get emotional about it, uh-huh. um, it's because I've lost it and I'm experiencing loss about that right now. I didn't know uh, that. My, oh, it's okay. My, my pain yeah. is just not letting me do what I want. And I'm still kind of struggling emotionally with how life has changed so quickly and everything's escalated so fast. Um, I wasn't ready for that this time things escalated and changed really fast for me. Like I'm talking like over three weeks, I went from feeling great and being as strong as I'd ever been in my life to doing radiation, having a big tumor in my pelvis that was pushing into my hip and causing me lots of pain and I couldn't do things. So that's where I am now. But you know, I think it was a process of seeing how other people who were in this situation were handling it and feeling inspired by that. I mean, I could name quite a few people who've inspired me to say, Hey, you still got some life in you, you know, why not make the best of it? And the best of it, uh, meant, uh, trying to get in better shape physically. Like if I'm going to survive, I think I need to give my body a chance to survive. And when I started that journey, I thought, back then three years ago almost four years ago now i thought once again that i was at the end right my cancer had come i think what that was probably the fifth time my cancer had come back and i'd had an emergent all this stuff happened and i ended up with an ostomy and had another surgery and i was like this is just just keeps happening and i was like but i got i came out of that funk I'd, i'd been running for a while and i started taking some medicines that didn't allow me to run because they were messing up my feet And so I lost that and I got sad, kind of like where I am now. It's pretty similar. And some friends just told me you should try this new kind of sport thing or it's called, you know, CrossFit. And I was like, man, I cannot, I can't do that. Like that's, well, lo and behold, I just decided to give it a shot. And I went into it thinking uh, at the time when I started that journey, I knew I had a surgery coming. I knew eventually I was going to have another surgery. It was just a matter of time. Right. We knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. And we wanted to put it off as long as we could. So I knew that I was going to have a surgery. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make that my goal that I get in shape because, geez, this is going to be my fifth abdominal surgery. Like I know how they go. I know how difficult they are. I know what recovery is when they cut my belly wide open. And, you know, you have to use your core more. You know, it's you know, I just know what that means. I think sometimes when I didn't ever know what surgery was like, how confident I would be that things are going to go fine. And the more they happen, I'm like, holy crap, these are really hard and this is going to be difficult and I'm aging and recovery doesn't go easy. So I knew I needed to increase the likelihood that I would be strong enough to recover from those surgeries. And, and it also just became a place where I was able to do set goals and accomplish them. I think I'd missed that. I think in professional life and academia and I just, you didn't, you don't get that kind of stuff in life, you know, and it's nice to, set goals for yourself and accomplish them. I don't care where they are. And I just, that was part of that journey and it helped me emotionally and it still does. And I don't, I'm praying and hoping that that it's not gone 
Um, but I just need to rethink what the what that looks like. I don't think I'm going to be able to maintain the frequency and the duration and the load of what I did because I, I was I'm still very proud of where I got. I had no idea I would be able to do some of the things that I did. I'm thankful that I got coaches. That was one of the biggest decisions I ever made that helped was finding people that had expertise in that and asking for help. Again, it was that practice, right? Like we have to do this in other parts of your life. You can't just do this with cancer, you know, right. you, cause if anything, cancer puts a big a mirror on you, right. And says, Hey, here's all the crap that's wrong with you. When you really start self-reflecting and you have to deal with that aspect of it all that, Oh, here's all these things that you don't like about yourself that you keep hiding from other people. And so asking for help extended beyond the cancer journey. And it was like, okay, you're not good at these things. Let's find people that are and see if they want to help you. And lo and behold, they did. And I got better at things and it felt really good like to be strong. I spent most of my life obese before cancer. Um, so to be strong enough to do things also became an aspect of it because the people that inspired me to get fit were also the people telling me, you've got to live your life to the fullest. You know, these people were grabbing life and saying, hey, let's let's live it. Let's be grateful and live with the time we got. Except I had to ask myself, could you do those things if someone called you and said, let's go do this? Right. Like if someone said, hey, Josh, you should climb a mountain. <laughs> you want to go do that? I'd have probably been like, that sounds like a great idea, but I don't know if I would have been physically able to do that. And so I started thinking, what are all these things you want to do with your life and that are going to bring you joy? And can you do them physically? Can you accomplish them? And then I started thinking, what are the things you've told the better I got? Boy, did it open up questions that were like, well, what are the things you've told yourself you can't do? You know, like how, how much time have you spent in your life telling yourself, I can't do that? Because that's how I started with that journey was, oh, I'm glad other people can do that, but I can't do that. And so then when I spent time doing it and I figured out I could, it was like, oh, what else have I spent my life saying, oh, I can't do that, but maybe I can't. I just got to try it. And so then through the process of leaving work and struggling with disability, I had more time on my hands. I had more ability to say, hey, let's let's focus on stuff that makes you happy. You know, and, and as difficult as it was to let go of a professional identity, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. It's It's not easy, but but not being in that rat race and having time to focus on the things that bring me joy, like things that make me happy and really like spend time with that is part of that compassion journey too. that self empathy of, yeah, these are the things that, that aren't good that you don't like about yourself, that you want to change. But where are these places? If you're really going to change those things, boy, does that, that seems like a heavy Debbie downer trip. Let's just work on these. No, you got to do that in conjunction with, stress management and and investing in the things that bring you joy boy let's celebrate all these things that are awesome you know and let's try to find more of these so we can multiply this because the more i multiply this that other stuff is kind of taking care of itself and i don't have to spend so much emotional weight and time and energy trying to say hey, how am i, I going to fix this about myself that i don't like but let's, we're going to do that. We're not going to ignore it that, because that would be, that would be being a bad husband and a bad father. But I want to concentrate on some of these things that made me happy. 
And that's what I've trying to been doing for the past year and a half, I guess, trying as best as I can. Well, I think that um, recently, you know, everybody does this thing where they pick a word, you know, pick a word for the year. I've never been good at that because, I, I you know, at the beginning of the year, I always think, oh, I, I can't make that choice right this minute. But recently I thought my word now for my life, not for the, not for a year, but the word I want to use in my life to remind myself to make the right choices for my life is joyous. I want to use, I, I apply the word, is it joyous? Does it create joy? Does it? And, um, I, I, you know, I want to talk for a little bit about your kids because I know that, um, I remember when your daughter was born, that it was, that was sort of a miraculous, I mean, was that, I, I mean, can we talk for a minute about your kids and how you're raising joyous oh, yeah. kids? Sure. I mean, both of my, both of my kids are, are, are miracles to me and my wife. I wasn't, I wasn't supposed to have children. So, you know, early in the cancer journey, we save sperm and, uh, you know, they knew cause I was going to radiate my pelvis. And so they had me, uh, bank my sperm for later in life, which we did. Um, and then the time came to try to have kids that way because I, wasn't able to have kids the natural way. We tested and tried and it just wasn't happening. Um, and we used everything that we saved to try to get pregnant. And none of that worked through IUF, through IVF. We did three rounds of IVF. And in Alabama, that's not covered by insurance. So all of that was just, oh yeah. So three separate rounds, just out of pocket. Um, and it didn't work. So we were like, okay, you know, depressed about that, sad, but we were social workers. So we that we would adopt, you know, it's no problem for, us. we'll just adopt. That's okay. Um, we knew we wanted children. We knew that was part of our journey as a married couple. We wanted to have children together. Um, so we decided to adopt, but by that time we had spent all our money doing IVF <laughs> that we, you know, adoption's expensive too. Um, we had no money to adopt. Um, so we went with the Catholic social services locally in Alabama, where we lived at the time, uh, operated on like a sliding scale fee, right? So they operated an adoption service that wasn't based off of a set fee. It was based off of what you made and a percentage. Um, so we got with them, except they had a wait list, right? So you had to, you had to wait. So we were on the waiting list for about a year, I guess. Wait, we thought we were going to hear from them and my wife got pregnant with our son. And so we, my son was born and it was a miracle and we still celebrate him and everything was going great. And then same thing happened three years later, we got pregnant with my daughter. And so now we have two kids that are just miracles to us and beautiful children. And uh, they're really, they're really much more mature than how old they are. And a lot of that's because of cancer and because of COVID and because of the intersection of cancer and COVID and having a parent that's ill. Um, so they're really, I'm, I'm so, so proud of how mature they've handled the past two, uh, two years now, right? Cause they've been at home. They have lost so much over the past couple of years because of me and having to be a parent and watch that is, is very difficult, but to see them at such a young age, 
wrestle with the reasoning and to be able to make an informed decision about, hey, we're doing this because we want to protect dad. Man, you want to talk about tearing your heart apart. Like that's, you know, you, I don't think some people have adult children that oh, make no, those decisions. No. <laughs> so having a six-year-old and a nine-year-old that are mature enough to sit with that decision and make an informed one that takes into consideration compassion and empathy for their parent, man, it's heavy. It's really heavy. You want to talk about gratitude, like you're just staring at it, like you're just looking at it in the face. Well, so, so, I mean, we, we began this, you know, let's, we want to talk about gratitude in a dark place, but I mean, I, you know, we have a lot of listeners that have, have, you know, I had a, I interviewed someone who lost a child to suicide and I, you know, we've, we've had, we've, we have people who are in dark places or who will be, you know, it's, it's like we talked about last week with my friend, David Baker, who said, you can't, you can't, um, shield your kids or the people you love from suffering. I mean, love and suffering go hand in hand. And so, um, it's, it's, I, I don't even know really where I'm trying to go, except that how do you, um, what, what, what do you, what would you, what sort of tips do you give people who are raising their kids in, in, in a little bit of, in suffering, not a little bit, a lot. Yeah. I, don't, I think that's where all parents are right now, whether they're honest about it or not. We collectively, if you ask me because of COVID are all grieving a loss, a sense of loss that most of us haven't processed. I think those of us that have been in loss and experienced it can see it for ourselves, but we can't make other people aware of that collective sense of how much we're all hurting. Um, so I think that's where all parents are. So I'm careful about giving any advice because I'm no expert in how to deal with this. I do know that our strategy and the strategy that I would, give advice about is honesty. Like I can't, I, I told my kids, you know, up until about, I don't know, four months ago, our policy for the most part about dad and everything else was just to answer questions as honestly as we could. So if our kids came to us with questions, we answered them as honestly as we could. We didn't keep anything from our kids, but we, we didn't really expand on it. Right. It was whatever was enough of an answer for the, our child, whichever one it was, to feel like their question had been answered. And if there were other aspects of it that were heavy, maybe we shielded them a little bit from that, but we didn't lie. There was no outright lying. I, I would never tell anybody to lie to their kids. I think that is counterproductive and will not help you in any way. I used to do family counseling and no, 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 no. Um, and so, you know, lately we had to sit them down and we had to say, really what's going on and, and explain what's really happening uh, because just because of the probability of what could happen in the short term and over the next 18 months or so, just trying to be honest with them. So that's my main advice, but I don't think there's an answer. I think in many ways, um, and I say this carefully uh, because I think my parents' generation, I, I I think what this generation of parents is going through is unique. I don't think we have much to say, 
hey, here's how they did it. Here's a good successful strategy of how to do this. Like, so I'm trying not to judge other people's decisions because all these decisions are just so complex today. Like, like, you know, like for instance, I, our kids are still virtual school. Like I, I can't send my kids to school yet. A, because I'm at risk. And if they bring home something, then I'm probably not going to, I could potentially have bad outcomes. Um, but also because I keep asking myself as a parent, would I have gone to a school with 1200 other students who were not wearing masks? Cause at the beginning of the year and where we live, there was no mask policy for schools. It's like, would I, if I was making that decision for myself, would I go to a school unvaccinated around over a thousand other unvaccinated people right now? And my answer would have been no. So at the end of the day, I have to say, well, why would I let my kids do that? But then again, that opens up me to saying, man, I'm judging all the other people that are having to do it. But what I don't see is that they don't have childcare like me. They have to go to work. And so there's just all this mismatch of difficulty right now that's really difficult to be a parent. But at the end of the day, I think my answer is just to be as honest as you can. Age appropriate. I don't think there's a need to put things above someone's emotional intelligence, which isn't always tied to an age, right? So age appropriate, emotional intelligence, appropriateness, honesty. And I think you can't, I don't think that's necessarily anything that's going to lead to something wrong. I don't think that's possible. I don't think you can be honest about any circumstances with anybody and have a bad outcome from that honesty. It may be hard, but I don't think it's going to be bad. It's just going to be honest. So do you have some sort of a daily gratitude? I mean, what do you, what do, you do on a daily basis with them or on your own? I mean, or is it daily or is it um, just sort of unconscious? I think, I think the daily things I do with the kids is just try to be, okay, so one of my struggles right now um, that I put myself under the microscope about is, is being present. I, I'm having some difficulties with feeling present because I'm here, but because of my pain, like I'm, I'm on morphine now. And there are just times where I get, I mean, I'm really, I'm dealing with uh, side effects of radiation. So I'm just really tired a lot. So I have to take lots of naps and there are just times where I don't feel present. And I don't know if that makes sense. I'm there physically but I don't feel present and I feel like that's unfair. So I feel bad about it. And I have a lot of emotions that I'm having to manage with that, but I try to be present. I try to make a concerted effort, whether it be play a game with them. My daughter and I lately have started baking cookies. I saw that. Um, I love that. So, so just, just trying to do something with them because we're both home. We've been home together for two years. We're, I'm pretty sure we've gotten past to being tired of each other. And we're so close. I feel like kids being vaccinated is really so close. And I keep telling them we're almost there. We are almost there um, that our lives might resemble some kind of normalcy. Uh, but I just I try I try to be present. That's my practice. Now, my practice personally, not collectively with my children, um, I, I am Jesuit educated. Uh, I was an educator also in a Jesuit institution. Um the order of Jesuits is a Catholic order that was founded by St. Ignatius. And he has a spiritual practice that he promotes, which is the examine. 
And that's a big part of my spiritual life and a big tool for my growth and this idea of who I'm becoming, even in difficulty. And really important for gratitude because the examine, a good part of it is at the end of the day, you're trying to ask yourself, how did the day go? Right? Were there places where you let people down? Right? Were there places where you came up short? Were there places that needed to be celebrated? And and how do you, at the end of the day, think about that and reflect on it? It's not asking you to make changes. There's, you know, maybe you did somebody wrong and you need to go apologize, but it's more just thinking those places where I came up short, what could I have done different, right? What did I do today that helped somebody, if anything? And just trying to be aware of how your day goes, you know, how, and I think the more I practiced it and appreciated it, the more I was able to develop the ability to be grateful in the moment, like to be, and that gets back to what I wanted to talk about today, because there's an aspect of this we haven't gotten to that if we have a few oh, minutes, absolutely. Like talking no, about, we can talk as long as we which want. Is, yeah. I had to, so the more I practice the examine and you can find out information about it, there's all kinds of stuff you can read about it. Um, it comes from St. Ignatius' spiritual exercises. I, I came to this appreciation of gratitude in that moment. It was so easy when I was younger, or maybe if you think about gratitude on a developmental kind of s- scale, it's not really tied to your age. It's just tied to how you understand it and how have you developed your practice. It was easy to be grateful about things in hindsight, right? Look back and be like, oh, I'm so grateful that happened. I'm so grateful this person came in my life. I'm so grateful they helped me yesterday. It's really hard to have that sense of gratitude when it's happening, right? Because part of me in my spiritual journey says that my gratitude is connected to my prayer life with God. And when I, gratitude is an outcome of my love and my compassion for myself and for others and for all living beings. And so when I feel it in that moment, I personally, from my faith perspective, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm close to God. Like I'm, I'm in that moment where I'm grateful right at that very second. And when it comes to my topic today, there's another aspect of darkness that has hit me over the past year or so with these struggles lately, which is how do I be grateful for the darkness? Not just grateful in the darkness, but how do I practice being grateful for the fact that darkness happens in my life? That I get in situations where this is hard and I don't want to do this and these decisions make no sense. And if I don't choose anything, that's the worst possible choice I could make uh, because then I'm just stuck here. Because for all up until a year ago, when I started thinking about it like that, gratitude in darkness was about the hope that this darkness is not going to last. Right. So much of that practice when I'm in darkness is telling myself mantras of this is going to pass. This too shall pass. Right. How many times do you hear that when you're in dark places? It makes me sick sometimes that I hear it all the time from people like this is going to pass because I'm sitting here with stage four cancer at the end of my life. Like maybe not. You know, this may not pass like this could be the time that's the end of my life. And that darkness is going to be here until that happens until I find that light that I'm seeking for. So how am I, I need to rethink gratitude in that darkness and ask myself if I really have gratitude, 
if that's something I had as a goal and I want to practice and have as a character trait, am I thankful for bad shit? You know what I mean? Like, am I really so grateful that I could sit in that darkness and say to myself, not all the time, but at least part of it, be like, hey, I'm glad that I'm here because I that's hard. But to me, if I really am grateful, I have to be grateful for everything. I can't pick and choose what I want to be grateful for. That's not how gratitude works in my mind and from where I come from. It tells me that if you're grateful, you are grateful for it all, every part of it. Self-acceptance, all that bad crap you have in your life, all your trauma, all your baggage you bring, all the flaws you bring to relationships, you have to be grateful for that. Because if you're not, I would say in a nice, careful way that your developmental sense of gratitude hasn't graduated yet. You haven't matriculated to the next step or whatever those steps might be. I think we all walk that journey differently. I don't think it's a linear path we're on, but I certainly think there are developmental milestones along the way. And those aren't tied to your age or your life course point. They sometimes can be tied to circumstances. We have to think about how adversity comes to us, when it comes to us, how it comes to us, what it looks like. And eventually, if we can be grateful in the moment, saying thank you and being open to what it's trying to tell me and teach me. If I believe I am becoming something, that I'm on this path of always trying to become me, right? Who am I and who am I trying to be? If I believe that to the core, I have to be thankful for the hard shit that has carved out this person that's Josh Wimberly, right? Because without it, I'm not the same person, right? I'm certainly not Josh Wimberly today if I haven't gone through cancer for 13 years. I don't think I'm the father I am or the husband I am. I may not be a a bad, it could be different. There may be a universe where that Josh exists, but in this universe where we are right now, I'm this guy that's had cancer for 13 years, but I'm still a human being. I got all these flaws and this junk that comes with being human. And I have to be grateful for it because that's who I am. And I, some of it I can change. And I try to, because that's part of becoming a better person. And I think we're all called to that. But some of it's just the muck of life, just the dirty mud and stuff we bring with us. And we're so grateful that other people put up with it, right? Like, like we're so grateful to have those loved ones in our life. They're like, you know what? I don't, I don't love you because of those things. I love you in spite of those things. And I can look past them and see the majority of that goodness that is you. And that's honestly, that's, I'm lucky to have a spouse that, that does that caregiver and a spouse and children. So people say, um, uh, uh, people will say to me now, they'll say, uh, so are you saying you're grateful that you got cancer? And I say, yes, absolutely. I say, I just like my friend who lost her son, she says, I am not grateful for the loss of my child, but I am grateful for who I am today because of it because of the darkness and the light that life i know that's hard and i i'm sure there's a listener out there that's your friend 
Uh, and I'm so sorry of how hard that is to hear because I don't want anybody to be thankful for losing someone to suicide. I don't want anybody to be thankful for loss. That That's not what I'm advocating. No, no, but And I don't think you are either. No. And I have to be careful to qualify that sure. because that can be hurtful to those people because it minimizes their pain. But I, I do believe fundamentally that if, if you were to ask me today, there would have been points in my journey where if you asked me if I was thankful to get cancer, I'd have said no. But if you asked me today, just like I said a second ago, absolutely. I am. I, I would absolutely. Am I thankful of how difficult it's been? Not really. I mean, it's hard. But I'm grateful for the lessons it's taught me, the people it's brought into my life, the ability to easily ask for help now and not feel prideful about that and put my ego aside and have those support systems that are there to help. Yes, I didn't see those things before cancer. I didn't know that. I didn't know, you know, my spiritual journey. I didn't know Jesus the healer until I got sick. There was a whole part of my spiritual journey that I had no idea was going to open up when I got diagnosed with a terminal illness. Um, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not, I don't put my beliefs on others. So I'm careful to say I'm, I'm coming from a Christian tradition. I don't want to minimize anybody else's perspectives. Lately, I've had to tell myself the hard part lately is how you see, I'm smiling. So I want your listeners to know I'm smiling. How awesome is it? That at the end, if this is the end of my life, how awesome is it that a global pandemic came around that forced me to stay at home with my family for two years? If you had to talk about what you were into your two life, what your end of your life would look like, wouldn't you want to be around your family as much as possible? And how I mean, what what a crazy thing to happen, right? If this is the end of my life, what a crazy thing that a global pandemic that has never happened in over a hundred years would happen at this moment. And I have spent the last two years with my kids a lot, and I'm sure my kids would have a different <laughs> different <laughs> feeling about that. I don't think but, so, but and I hope that when this is all said and done, that I hope that it's not the end of my life. But if it is. I hope they can see that later in life. I hope they can be like, wow, how amazing that the universe did that, that that happened. COVID sucked. I had to be home, but man, that we got to, we got to be with dad for like two years. Yeah. And I mean, I know that sounds crazy to people that, to the kids. Like if my kids heard that, they'd be like, yeah, we've been with dad for two years. They'd say it like that, you know, like, Geez, yeah, dad's been getting on to us for two straight years. But, <laughs> you know, just to spend time with them is just absolutely amazing. And my wife, too. My wife's been working from home. So she's a therapist. So when she's not seeing somebody, we're sitting in the living room together. There's just all this quality time that happened because of a global pandemic. And I try to be happy about that. Well, I, I, I'm like you, Josh. I hope this is not the end of your life. I'm so, you have been so present while we've been talking. I'm, I thank you for that. But I really, I mean, I've, I got to work on the gratitude for darkness piece in my life. Oh, I, me too. Yeah. I don't mean to speak like an expert. <laughs> but I, what a great point. I mean, I, you know, we've had a lot of loss in our household lately, a lot of friends who have passed away. And it's, it's, that's, I want to talk about that some more. Can we do this again? Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, 
Thanks. I just want to leave with one final Please point real do. quick. Please do. So my dissertation and my research when I was an academic was about hopelessness. So I hope that anybody that's listening to this and having to deal with darkness knows that there's hope. I do fundamentally believe that no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, there's a path to a better future. And the minute we let go of that, that hope, that seed, that, that it, that it will get better with work, that yes, even if this is the end of my life and I can't solve this problem, there's a better future for me. My family has a better future. It's, it's, it will happen. It's not going to be easy. And so I want anybody that's listened to this to know that there's help out there, that if you're in darkness and you're in a tough spot, you're, you're, you're not alone. I think we're, we're all struggling with that feeling right now. Some of us better than others. Um, and I think a lot of people feel alone right now, even if they're around people and in proximity to people, they still feel alone because of what's happened in the world. And we all need to be honest. There's that word again, honesty. We need to be honest about that so that we can help each other and say, you know what, what's that? What is, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown. What does she say is the most important thing when someone's in darkness is, you know, me too, me too. That, that you don't have to do anything else. You just have to look at somebody and be present and say, yeah, it, it sucks sometimes. And it, but it can suck with us together. You know, maybe I can make it suck a little less. And if we can just hold on to that, I think we can fight that monster that's hopelessness that kind of seeps in when we're not thinking about it. Um, because make no mistake, gratitude is not the antidote to hopelessness in my mind. It's a good part of it, right? But gratitude is not enough. It's not sufficient to help someone that's in a really, really tough spot. And we have to be ready to share our uh, love and our acceptance uh, that brings somebody to a place to where they can be more grateful than they were when we tried to help them. Uh, but we have to, we can't just look at someone and tell them gratitude's enough because if they're in a dark place, you can practice gratitude and try to get out and dig, but it's probably going to take some other tools. And if you don't have those tools, just like we were talking earlier, find somebody that does, you know, and ask them for help because I think you'll be surprised. Thank you, Josh. Thanks. You're welcome. Thank you. That's all we've got today, friends. I want to thank you for joining the Life Saving Gratitude podcast with your host, Bunny Terry, that's me, and my producer and assistant, Johanna Medina. We feel like we're in the business of sharing the stories that save us, and we hope you'll share as well by letting your friends and family know about the podcast. Follow and like us wherever you listen, and please take the time to leave a review. Whether it's a stellar comment or a suggestion, we are open to suggestions all the time. Also, follow us on Instagram at LifesavingGratitudePod. You can also follow me personally at Bunny Terry Santa Fe. You can sign up at my website at BunnyTerry.com to receive weekly emails about how to become the ultimate gratitude nerd. Thanks so much for checking in. 